This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Leukemia. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. In the early 1800s, physicians began noticing cases of unusual blood diseases. In 1811, Dr. Peter Cullen of Edinburgh detailed a case of a 35-year-old male who presented to him with fever and abdominal pain. Dr. Cullen discovered that the patient had acute splenic enlargement with milky-appearing blood. He treated the man with his standard of care at the time, which was bloodletting. That seemed to help because by the fourth or fifth bloodletting, his blood was no longer milky and appeared much more natural. A few years later, in 1827, French surgeon Dr. Alfred Velpo described the case of Mr. Vernus, a 63-year-old with fever, weakness, abdominal swelling, and kidney stones that progressed over a course of nearly a decade. On autopsy, he had an enlarged liver and spleen with thick, pus-filled blood vessels. Dr. Velpau went on to correctly postulate that Mr. Vernus suffered from a circulatory system disease. Over the next few decades, other case reports were published with similar cases of systemic disease and milky-appearing blood. Finally, in 1845, Dr. Alfred Donnet, a microscopy pioneer, noticed that white globules could exist in large numbers in the blood, which he suspected was due to arrest in differentiation of white blood cells. He published his findings in an atlas demonstrating leukemic cell morphology. He didn't quite put his microscopic findings together with clinical presentation, though. So who gets credit for discovering leukemia? The answer to that question is up for debate, with four different individuals cited as being the one, depending on your source. There's Alfred Velpo, Alfred Donnet, John Bennett, or Rudolf Virchow.
Today, nearly a new leukemia case is diagnosed every 10 minutes in the United States. But fortunately, leukemia treatment is also advancing at a fast rate. The five-year survival has more than quadrupled since the 1960s. So to discuss with us the presentation, diagnosis, prognosis, and treatment is one of Ohio State University James Cancer Hospital's hematology experts. I am pleased to introduce Assistant Professor of Medicine, Dr. Carolyn Larkin. Carolyn specializes in treating leukemia and is a member of the Leukemia Research Program at Ohio State University's Comprehensive Cancer Center. Carolyn, welcome to MedNet. Thanks, Jing. I'm very happy to be here. Well, Carolyn, um, I am really excited to hear your talk, but before we get started, I have a very basic question. Maybe basic to you, but as a non-hematologist, what is the main difference between leukemia and lymphoma? They're both blood diseases, right? Absolutely, and that's actually a great question, and oftentimes, you know, as fellows come in, they have the same question. So the big difference is where does the disease originate? So when it comes to blood cancers, the blood system involves your bone marrow, your blood, and then sort of the other blood tissues we think about as the spleen and the lymph nodes. And so the difference between leukemia and lymphoma is where does the cancer start? Leukemia, it starts in the bone marrow and circulates in the blood. In lymphoma, the cancer starts within the lymph nodes. It can hit a leukemic phase where it then disseminates to the blood, but if it starts in the lymph nodes, that makes it a lymphoma. Okay, well, that's very helpful. Thanks, Carolyn. We're gonna dive into our program in just a moment here. But before we get started, I wanted to let you know that you can access our entire catalog of programs on our website at go.osu.edu slash mednet. You can also listen to our programs by podcast if you prefer. Search for Mednet 21 CME on your preferred podcast app. If you have any questions about our program, send them over to us using the Ask a Question feature on the webcast player. Now let's get started. Carolyn? Great. So again, thanks for being here. I'm really excited to talk about leukemia since this is really the focus of what I do. So this talk is designed to give uh, everyone a framework of some of the most common kinds of leukemia, but we aren't gonna talk about CLL because I believe you have an entire uh, different lecture on that at another time. So my objectives for this uh, next hour is really to help you guys understand what the presenting symptoms of leukemia can be so that you have a framework to diagnose and refer patients and then also to be able to understand the basic biology, um, what we do as far as diagnostic workup, um, and then how we prognosticate for these patients, and then a little bit about our therapeutic options as well. So let's start with the case. So case number one, your longtime patient, Mr. Smith, a 57-year-old man who works on his farm, presents with progressive fatigue and dyspnea on exertion over the last two weeks. He has had shortness of breath with minimal activity and chest pain with climbing stairs. One month ago, he was carrying 50-pound bags of feed without any difficulty. He knows a headache that has been constant, really, for the past 24 hours. He's able to sleep while laying flat on one pillow. So what are some other things we know about this gentleman? Um, his past medical history is really significant only for hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and rheumatoid arthritis. His social history is he has a 20-pack year smoking history. He drinks one or two drinks a few times a week, and he lives on his farm with his wife. They have a large dog and two cats and three children whom are grown. His family history is significant for coronary artery disease and prostate cancer. And for medications, he takes lisinopril, simvastatin, and methotrexate. On physical exam, he's pale but not ill-appearing. He does have a rapid heart rate, and he's not short of breath at rest. You notice, actually, that he has hypertrophied gums with areas of bleeding. 
There's no pitting edema in his legs as long as they're clear, and he has no palpable lymphadenopathy on your exam. He does, though, have some notable ecchymoses on his arms and legs. You get blood work, and what comes back is a complete blood count showing a white count of 55,000. His hemoglobin is 6. Platelets are only 15,000. And his complete metabolic profile comes back with a creatinine of 1.5 with a baseline that's normally 1.1. Otherwise, it's all within normal limits. And then you also note that his AST and ALT are minimally elevated. So with that information, um, most folks would probably have some concerns. And so perhaps you reach out to your local hematologist and what are the questions that you're going to get back? So number one, when I get this phone call, are what are his coags? So PT, PTT, and INR, but also importantly, fibrinogen. And the reason I ask this is based on this presentation, I'm already concerned about acute leukemia and we're going to get into that in a minute. And I'm thinking about the sort of immediate threats to this gentleman. And one of the things we think about is DIC. And so some folks having a coagulopathy or not really triage is sort of how urgently we need to think about um, having him seen and what interventions we would do. The second is a uric acid. So we noted he had AKI, and although it wasn't terrible compared to his baseline, patients who present with acute leukemia can also present in tumor lysis. And a lot of these folks will actually have uric acids, you know, in excess of eight or 10 even, and you know, their renal function will only get progressively worse until this is addressed. Um, my other question is always, has there been any fevers? And the reason for that is, you know, despite the fact that the patient has a high white blood cell count, if this is in fact an acute leukemia, most likely he is functionally neutropenic or absolute neutropenic. And any fever is sort of an urgent emergency because these patients can crash very quickly. And so that also is an important fact in terms of what we'll do next with the patient. I'll also ask questions about any headaches, any vision changes, we already said he was dysthmic on exertion, but is there on your exam any difficulty breathing or hypoxemia, even in absence of sort of increased work of breathing and any chest pain? And these are really questions that are getting to any signs of leukostasis. So what are the immediate next steps for this gentleman? Pretty much regardless of the answers to the questions we got on, on the prior slide, it is to report to the closest ER. Now, if you have the luxury of being in a uh, metropolitan area where some hospitals actually treat leukemia, that's the one you want to tell your patient to go to. However, if you're somewhere where that's you know, not feasible, going to the nearest ER is absolutely appropriate. These are the patients that keep me up still all night. So these are the patients that usually will get called about, and then from the moment we hear about them, those questions that I asked, the labs that we talked about, start this cascade of events where we are trying to get a diagnosis basically before the sun comes up so that we can head off any problems if they are starting. So acute leukemia presenting symptoms. I gave you some of them in that case, but let's talk about the things that we can see. Again, there are a large variety of presentations from acute leukemia that actually can vary from no symptoms at all um, to very dramatic presentations. So number one is cytopenias. One unifying thing between acute leukemia is the bone marrow has been deranged by an aggressive and often quick disease and results in pretty significant anemia and thrombocytopenia most of the time. You can also have a leukopenia or a low white blood cell count fairly commonly, but the second bullet point is you can also see hyperleukocytosis. And if you look at those um, CBC on a peripheral blood smear, you'll note that these are blast cells. These are abnormal cells. This is not going to be somebody who has um, all the typical cells that you would expect to see in a CBC. If somebody has hyperleukocytosis, 
And typically a, a rough estimate of when we start to get concerned is above 50,000, although the symptoms of leukostasis can appear earlier than that, and certainly that number can be much higher and still not have leukostasis. But that basically is the, you know, the cells sort of clogging up the, the small pipes, if you will, and presenting with signs of stroke, visual changes, heart attack, trouble breathing, and, and organ damage can also occur. One thing that patients can also present with is extramedullary disease. This is a lot more rare in um, AML, but it can happen where basically these are tumors and they are collections of the cells that usually just float freely in the blood, but you can have a mass and sometimes those present in the facial area like a jaw mass or sometimes actually we've had breast masses. Um, and so again, that's just something to consider um, on a physical exam. Tumor lysis syndrome I mentioned a bit before, but with proliferative aggressive leukemia, you get also destruction and death in cells. And so you get elevated potassium, calcium, and uric acid. And so looking for that's important because if that's happening, treating the electrolyte abnormalities and preventing really worsening uh, a kidney injury is very important. And then the last is disseminated intravascular coagulation or DIC, which I think everyone is familiar with. This can present uh, at the beginning of leukemia. It can present days into the leukemia treatment and is important to recognize because these patients can have catastrophic both clotting and bleeding um, sequelae, but also it requires a lot of uh, uh, transfusion support, um, and that oftentimes can be overwhelming in terms of transfusion burden for these patients as well. So case number two. Your longtime patient, Mr. Habib, a 57-year-old man who works on his farm, presents with progressive fatigue and early satiety over the past several months. He denies any shortness of breath with minimal activity, but notes some discomfort with deep inspiration and frequent sharp pains on his left side. He has been sleeping well and doesn't understand why he's feeling so fatigued. His past medical history is significant for hypertension and hyperlipidemia. He's also social history of 20 pack years of smoking. He drinks one to two drinks a few times a week and lives on his farm with his wife. They have a small dog and two hamsters and two children whom are grown. His family history is significant for coronary artery disease and prostate cancer. Um, and then in terms of medications, he takes lisinopril and simvastatin. On physical exam, he appears well, non-toxic. He has normal vital signs. His cardiac exam is really unremarkable. No pitting edema, his lungs are clear, uh, and no lymphadenopathy on your exam. But he does have a spleen that is palpable four centimeters below the left costal margin. He has no rashes or bruising. His CBC comes back after you get your labs and shows a white count again of 55,000. But his hemoglobin is 10 and his platelet count is 325. For his complete metabolic panel, he too has a little bit of AKI, but more modest um, and otherwise with a normal limit. And his AST and ALT are normal. So this time, what does the hematologist need to do? And I tried to highlight some of the things in this case that would make it different from the one before and things like his counts being different, him having less of uh, AKI. The simple fact that he has normal platelet count in a mild anemia sort of immediately triages him to something that is probably less threatening, less on the acute range. So my number one question for this patient is what does his peripheral blood smear look like? Because in my head, this is CML until proven otherwise. Um, and you know, so we can tell that which we'll get into on the smears that we look at. I also want to know his uric acid because CML, like acute leukemia, is a proliferative disease and these patients can also accumulate a high uric acid which can lead to some kidney dysfunction but is very rarely ever in tumor lysis. It's, it's not the same. 
And then I also want to know when was his last CBC and what did it look like? Because as we talked about kind of in the beginning, patients who present with CML, often this has been going on for a while and the initial signs can be very, very subtle. And so occasionally when we have patients, we can look back six months or a year and see a CBC where the white count might be 12. And again, it was barely you know, up in the setting of you know, everything else going on. And oftentimes you can blame uh, a recent illness or something else for just these very subtle um, CBC changes. So what are the immediate next steps? Well, somebody really does need to look at this peripheral blood smear, and so sometimes that means going to the nearest ER, and sometimes that, you know, that means something that can happen sort of in the light of day. But from there, assuming we see the classic signs of CML, it would also be sending a BCR able, and we'll talk about that as we move on, and then this person can actually follow up in clinic. And I see lots and lots of these consults still in the ER, and if we are fortunate enough to see them, we oftentimes can do this where we basically get the lab set up, we tell them what we think, and they never actually need to be admitted to the hospital. So CML presenting symptoms are usually quite different. There's usually a mild anemia and then either a normal platelet count or actually an elevated platelet count. You can very often see hyperleukocytosis, and sometimes it's very impressive. There are times, you know, it's 55,000, there are times it's 310,000. Um, and again, usually the patient who has a white count of 310,000 and is still talking to you, feeling fine, reporting no symptoms, that helps you, you know, to suspect that it's going to be more on the chronic side versus acute. Splenomegaly, again, is very common, and that usually presents with some symptoms, but you know patients, they uh, don't always read the book, and some patients are much more tolerant of these symptoms than others. So they can range from early satiety to significant pain. And then because of their splenomegaly and the elevated you know, circulating white blood cell counts, you can actually get infarcts in the spleen as well. And so occasionally that is what brings somebody to attention. They have this acute, severe, um, left-sided uh, upper quadrant pain, and it is a new splenic infarct that will bring them to attention. And then last, we talked about hyperuricemia, again, because this is a proliferative disease, you can see that as well. So to kind of get back to the beginning, what is a leukemia? And you know, I thank Jingyun for your question. This is a disorder of the entire hematopoietic system. And in fact, you know, a lot of times fellows will start out telling people that this is a cancer of the white blood cells, and that's not entirely true either, because sometimes it starts even earlier before a cell has decided to be a white cell. So this is a diagram of hematopoiesis, and while it's small and not intended to give you all of the details, I think that it helps appreciate that most of the work of becoming an adult blood cell happens within the bone marrow. And so how we have all of these immature cells that go through these stages of maturity until they become fully formed white blood cells that we're used to seeing in the bloodstream. And so that leukemia is when at some phase along the way, one of these cells becomes cancerous. It becomes dysregulated either from genomic changes um, or other things that we'll talk about here and gives rise to a malignant clone. So one way I like to talk to patients to help understand, because chronic leukemias are more prevalent owing to their better um, long-term prognosis, a lot of patients have never heard of an acute leukemia when they show up. And so acute leukemia is sort of a cancerous derangement of these very early phase, or what we call the blast cells. So the very most immature cell in the marrow is a blast. And as it becomes more mature, you know, it develops into these uh, more mature cells. So acute leukemias are cancers that come out of these early phased or blast cells, whereas chronic leukemias are a cell that is much further along the differentiation pathway and sometimes a fully mature cell that then becomes malignant. 
So the other way this diagram is nice to help split is one of the first decisions a blast cell sort of progeny has to make in its growing up path is whether it's going to become a myeloid cell or a lymphoid cell. And so the myeloid uh, lineage is the cells that become basically most of your blood cells. You get your red cells, your platelets, and then most of the white blood cells, your neutrophils, your monocytes, um, all come from that myeloid lineage. And the, lin uh, the lymphoid lineage are really the cells that become the sophisticated cells of your immune system, the lymphocytes. So you have your B, T cells, and NK cells. So we talked about acute and chronic, and now we have myeloid and lymphoid. And so on the myeloid side, if you have an acute myeloid leukemia, I kind of have highlighted the cells that we're talking about there. And then a chronic myelogenous leukemia uh, is a cancer that really demonstrates that span of maturation within the blood. And so if we switch over to the lymphoid side, we have acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And then at the chronic phase, again, CLL. And this is the first and last time we'll, we'll really focus on CLL. One thing worth mentioning, we won't spend very much time on today as well, is that there are always things that fall outside of our nice categorization. And so there are actually some acute leukemias that are so immature or so um, messed up that they haven't necessarily followed one lineage or another. So we call those ambiguous lineage acute leukemias. And sometimes that can not be differentiated and sometimes it actually can be a mixed lineage phenotype. So what does leukemia look like under the microscope? I mentioned in the first couple of cases that one of the penultimate things that I do and why we still come into the hospital at 2 a.m. is to look at a peripheral blood smear. And there is a lot that one can glean from that. So in this set of images in the bottom right-hand corner, that's actually a normal um, micrograph of the blood. And you can see nice round red blood cells. You actually only see one neutrophil there. And that gives you kind of the relative context of how many white blood cells you should see compared to red blood cells. And then you see these tiny little purple dots, and those are your platelets. At the top um, right, you actually see um, CML. And so in this one, what I wanted to point out is you still see a variety of cells. You see cells that, you know, I can tell you are normal, mature neutrophils, but you also see these metamyelocytes and myelocytes. And that is the variety and maturity of somebody who has a chronic leukemia. The other sets of uh, images are actually all of blast cells. And the one thing I really wanted to point out is that it is very difficult from just this examination to tell the difference between an acute myeloid leukemia and acute lymphoid leukemia. If you find the presence of something called our rods, which again is very hard to see on here, but it is the little red arrow on that bottom middle image, an our rod can tell you for sure you're dealing with an AML versus ALL. But for the vast majority of these patients, we are able to look at a smear and kind of immediately give them a rough categorization. But when it comes to acute leukemias, we do need to do more work to really decide if it's an AML or ALL much of the time. So what kind of testing? These patients you know, end up often in the hospital or in our, cl uh, our clinics very urgently. And we do bone marrow biopsies. The bone marrow biopsies are useful for us to understand the morphology of the cells and give the ultimate diagnosis. We send for flow cytometry, which is our test um, where we get also called immunophenotyping. We get the markers on the outside of the cells, and that is always diagnostic of the lineage and type of leukemia that we're dealing with. Cytogenetics refers to the DNA changes that you can see within the disease. And then molecular genetics is basically the newest form of testing where we can not only understand at the karyotype level, but the actual gene level and individual protein level, what mutations we are seeing in a disease. So to, a bit on genetic testing, which again, we're just going to kind of scratch the surface of here. These are all tests that we order on basically every acute leukemia patient that comes in. 
So a karyotype is the oldest form of cytogenetics where we take out you know, patient cells, we let them get to metaphase, and then we literally line up and count the chromosomes that they have, and we can find out if there's recurrent genetic abnormalities that tend to be characteristic of certain types of leukemia, and they're prognostically important as well as we'll talk about. FISH, or fluorescence in situ hybridization, is an additional test on um, the chromosomes where we can be very specific and say, I am interested in a deletion 7, or I am interested in the loss of p53. So these are fluorescent probes that are put on cells. They're not required to get all the way to metaphase. It's a much faster test. So this test can be turned around in the span of sort of six or eight hours and often provide very um, pivotal information for patients that are on the very sick end of things. And then last is sort of molecular genetics, or what we refer to as next generation sequencing, or NGS. And these are the big panels that we send that we have identified, you know, X amount of genes. In our case, sometimes it's 75 sets of recurrently mutated genes. Um, and this takes about a week to 10 days to come out. We can do it in-house in our institution, and a lot of other places, they're sort of send-out tests that come back and give you a next level of detail about how um, the leukemia sort of has arisen and, and what might be targets. So briefly, other tests and procedures that we do in the span of diagnosing leukemia. So lumbar punctures actually is a um, not common thing for us to do in AML. We would only do it if we have a high suspicion. But for the ALL disease, this is a disease that tends to try to get into the CNS pretty frequently. And so everyone requires a lumbar puncture on diagnosis. And then even if they do not have evidence of disease, their treatment course will involve multiple lumbar punctures with chemotherapy to try to prevent them from ever getting that. For CML, it is n almost never indicated. Uh, there is the occasional time where you have a strong suspicion and you might do one to check, but it's not a typical procedure. PET or CT scans are generally done in you know, lymphoma world and, and solid tumor world. We don't have a large use for them in leukemia with the um, caveat that patients who present, as we talked about with myeloid sarcomas or sort of the tumors of leukemia, those are patients for whom we might do that, again, to look if there are other places besides the ones that we can tell that harbor disease. And then it's worth mentioning that most of our patients actually do benefit from having a, some type of line placed because of the frequency of blood draws, the absence of good hematopoiesis, and need for transfusions. But as you can see on the right, you know, CML really doesn't need all of those things. So in brief, I wanted to talk kind of big picture, leukemia, acute versus chronic. In terms of prevalence, most people will be more, more familiar and there's a higher prevalence of chronic leukemias because they live longer. And so even though incidence will be higher for, say, AML versus CML in a given year, because CML tend to have normal lifespans, you will see a lot more of that in practice. In terms of curability, you know, we used to have this sort of mnemonic that, you know, chronic leukemias were the incurable kind, and that's still mostly true, although we'll get into a little bit of the weeds later on. And acute leukemias tend to be ones that are curable, but in fact the road towards cure is not open to everybody who is diagnosed and can be very difficult. So again, the lines are now starting to be blurred even in that respect with acute and chronic leukemias. And then in terms of acuity severity, you know, acute leukemia gets its name from the fact that it does happen very quickly and very often causes you know, severe symptoms. But in fact, in practice, there are some acute leukemias that can present sort of indolently, and they can have a slower course in comparison to some AMLs. Compared to chronic, it is always a faster course, and there are always sort of more consequences to this diagnosis. And then in terms of treatment, really, um, I'm very happy to report that things have changed a lot. And so 
It used to be that there was only intensive treatment for acute leukemics, but we really have some low intensity and very targeted therapies now, and so we'll get into that in a little bit. So quickly, um, epidemiologically, AML is, as I mentioned, actually the most common uh, leukemia diagnosed in older adults. It, there is approximately 20 new cases yearly in the U.S. Um, unfortunately, the five-year survival is only 30%, and the median age is 68 years. ALL, far fewer cases diagnosed, um, but the median age is 17 years, and the five-year over, overall survival is 70%. However, as we look at these two acute leukemias, the good outcomes that the pediatric population sees certainly skews their survivals in both cases. And CML is uh, sort of there in the middle, being diagnosed um, more frequently than ALL, and the median age, again, is in the adult population at 65, with a much better five-year overall survival. Um, so. so we're going to talk briefly now specifically just about chronic myelogenous leukemia. So diagnosing CML, we've discussed already a little bit with our cases, and so it's important to have a good clinical history, a good physical exam, um, the lab work that we discussed, but the penultimate, the most important thing really is your BCR-ABLE. And then the bone marrow biopsy actually does come in as far as weighing in on stage. And so here's a uh, sort of pictorial representation of the Philadelphia chromosome, which is the name we give to that BCR translocation. And so translocation 922, which you can pick up on karyotype, fish, or molecular testing, is diagnostic of this disease. And what happens is part of chromosome 9, the long arm there, breaks off, and part of chromosome uh, 22 does as well, and they switch. And so what you end up with is this translocation in your chromosome that creates this mutant protein, this BCR-ABLE. And the way I like to explain it to patients is it's basically like an on switch broke off and stuck next to a grow signal. And so now the cells lose the ability to be regulated in the normal way, and they just grow, 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 which leads to the phenotype of CML. So symptoms, we've talked about again too. So about half of patients can actually be asymptomatic at diagnosis. Um, more than half of patients tend to present with splenomegaly. Again, sometimes they might note it, sometimes they may not. Fatigue and night sweats are again common. And then sometimes there are symptoms of anemia or bleeding due to platelet dysfunction. And very, very, very few patients would ever present with this hyperviscosity symptom. Um, and that's usually at extremely high WBC counts. So with regards to looking at their CBC, as we talked about a little bit in the images, you know, you would expect to see a lot more white blood cells than normal. So this median uh, is 100,000 for presentation with a left shift. And that means we see a lot of these immature types, but not just blasts, and that's important. Myelocytes typically outnumber um, mature metamyelocytes, so they're more mature cells. And then usually blasts are a minority of the cells. You will probably see some blasts if you look long enough at the smear, but it's uh, less than 2%. There is usually a lot more basophils than what you would expect to see in a normal person, and these are a nice pretty cell filled with these blue cytoplasmic granules, so they're usually easy to pick out. You'll also usually see more eosinophils than you would in a normal smear. And then again, a, a key tell for this is usually that the platelet count is normal or actually elevated. Um, if there is thrombocytopenia, it is going to either be a later stage, which we'll get into, or we're dealing with an acute leukemia. So three phases of CML, chronic, accelerated, and blast phase. Most every patient presents in chronic phase, which is the earliest phase, and means that there's sort of a normal degree of blast in the blood and the marrow. But this is where doing the bone marrow biopsy is able to tell the difference. 
Accelerated is a, um, there's actually multiple definitions that go into accelerated phase, but that's the phase where we're starting to get worried about this transforming into blast phase. And blast phase really is, this has changed into an acute leukemia. And uh, strangely enough, you can actually have both a myeloid blast phase or a lymphoid blast phase. There are different risk scores. So I, CML doesn't have true staging the way a lot of other um, cancers can. So what we use are these risk scores to try to understand which CMLs might be sort of bad actors who might not respond as quickly or as nicely to the inhibitor therapies that we have. And basically what we do is we take spleen size and cell counts plus or minus age, they go into a calculator and that gives you a risk group. So a word about BCR-ABLE tyrosine kinase inhibitors. This is one of the true wins for uh, targeted therapy in um, leukemia. And so imatinib was the first TKI that was um, basically developed in 1998. And it was intelligently designed to fit this BCR-ABLE protein. And there was a lot of skepticism that a single drug blocking a single area was going to have so much success, but it really did. And so fast forward to today, we actually have six options um, to treat people with this disease. In terms of which TKI we choose, uh, there's a lot that goes into that decision. Each TKI has its own sort of unique um, side effects, and so we try to match side effects with the person's other comorbidities and symptoms and tolerances that we might know about. Um, the disease phase does matter. Patients who presented in an accelerated phase need a stronger TKI or these sort of second-generation TKIs. But sometimes the, the deciding factor is copay. So I actually have several elderly patients who have come in lately, you know, in their 70s as a new diagnosis with copays that would have been in excess of 1500 or more dollars per month to get anything but imatinib, which is now um, generic. And so both were started on imatinib. So monitoring while on TKI therapy, we do CBCs until the, that CBC normalizes. We do quantitative PCR, so we're able to kind of say what is the level of transcript every three months. Um, we look at labs and our exams are really focused on the side effect profiles of each TKI. And you know, we meet to talk about what patients are having in terms of what they feel are intolerable side effects. These are molecular response definitions, and basically these are the levels that we hope to achieve in patients who are on therapy, and there's actually a schedule when we expect them to achieve by, and if somebody is not able to uh, achieve a depth of response at a certain point, that would be an indication to look into changing their therapy or looking into seeing whether there are a resistance mutation. So... Uh, there are a number of patients who become intolerant to one or more TKIs. Side effects can be very numerous, but the thing that I would say is key for patients to understand is that most often side effects actually resolve with time, and they can be managed with good supportive care. The thing that comes to mind is you know, uh, nausea and diarrhea you know, being managed with good supportive care there until they resolve and make them manageable. Um, and then also there are dose reductions and interruptions. There are some severe complications such as acute pancreatitis and some um, very bad pleural effusions that could mean we permanently discontinue a drug and move on to a different one. So in the setting of losing response to a TKI, you know, we always ask about adherence, but we also need to ask about are they taking these medicines correctly? So for some, each of the medications, some need to be taken with food, some should be taken without food. There are several that are exquisitely sensitive to being on um, uh, PPIs, and so they actually cannot be taken concurrently. And then, like I said, last but not least, you do start to see resistance um, come up in some patients. The most exciting, I would say, new develop in the therapy of CML, sort of, since I've been practicing, is this treatment-free remission. And so clinical trials have now demonstrated that for some patients who respond 
terrifically to their TKI. They get this very deep remission that is prolonged. They are eligible to try to come off of their TKI. And so the criteria there, um, it, that is less important than the fact that uh, once you actually discontinue them, you need to watch them closely. We go actually to monthly monitoring of PCRs um, to see how they do. And then basically half of them will actually have a disease relapse. You will detect PCR rising. And if they're going to not stay in remission, usually they will declare themselves within 12 months. And then half of the patients actually will stay, like I said, where they're undetected. Um, and then usually when you restart their therapy, you're able to get them back into their deep remission. And so we aren't experiencing a lot of sort of resistance by doing that. So in summary, for CML, the CBC and peripheral smear are very helpful in distinguishing this diagnosis. The um, actual diagnosis comes from the translocation 922, and bone marrow biopsy establishes the stage. There are multiple TKI options, so most patients can live a full life expectancy by taking you know, a pill. And then fortunately, some patients, even though minority, might be able to come off after usually you know, three or more years. So we're going to move on to acute leukemias. And again, this is a little bit of a whirlwind tour through this disease. As I mentioned, there are these ambiguous lineage. Um, and those are the least uh, common kind, then ALL is the next least common, and then far and away AML is the more common acute leukemia we see in adults. So there are actually um, several risk factors for developing acute leukemia. Exposure to benzenes, um, prior myeloid malignancy such as MDS or MPN, prior ionizing radiation, and we're talking not about um, you know, the occasional chest x-ray here, but this is somebody who has experienced radiation as part of treatment for some other um, cancer, or present somebody who worked you know, on a nuclear submarine or something like that. Um, prior chemotherapy is also a substantial risk factor for developing a leukemia. And then there are these new entities, or now it's new now, called CHIP and CCUS, where these clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential and clonal cytopenias of undetermined significance, what we think of these as precursor phases to either an MDS or an AML. So diagnosing acute leukemia, we talked about a little bit in the case, you know, the peripheral smear and CBC, we do a lot of laboratory tests, we need to do bone marrow biopsies, and then plus or minus the lumbar puncture and genetic testing. Symptoms really are an incredible range. You know, with the case, I tried to highlight some of the more um, standout symptoms that make me worried in, in these urgent cases. But one thing I want to say is that um, it can look like a lot of things. And the importance about acute leukemia sometimes is recognizing that somebody's on the edge of a cliff. And they may look pretty good to you at the moment, but if they have certain features of acute leukemia that are kind of listed, they may not do well, and that might not take very long to be evident. So this is why it's just real important to have uh, you know, high suspicion, and then once you have recognized it, to get them to care you know, in short order. So people can present with you know, a little bit of fatigue, fevers, infections, DIC, tumor lysis, this hyperleukocytosis we've talked about, bleeding or bruising. Um, sometimes it's as simple as a rash, um, and that could be petechiae or actually leukemia acutis, um, so leukemia cells infiltrating just the skin. The gum hypertrophy is another classic finding, and I've had patients that are presented literally from their dentist's office, and then the myeloid sarcoma we talked about as well. So CBC and peripheral smear, we kind of went over. Um, expectations are neutropenia, potentially a leukocytosis, but if you see it, again, it's going to be predominantly blast. And even if you're someone who doesn't look at blast as often as I do, when you look at the peripheral blood smear, it's going to all look the same. It's not going to look like a normal cell. They're you know, large and you know, very monotonous. You might see some dysplastic neutrophils, and then you often see anemia without any of the other fi findings of uh, anemia, and then low platelets as well. 
So I think treatment nomenclature is another good thing to kind of hit at. So regardless of the type of leukemia you're treating, we talk about induction, consolidation, and maintenance. So induction is that first phase where we try to induce a remission. We try to get rid of as much leukemia as we can. Consolidation is once you're in a remission, what do we do to try to keep you there? And then maintenance is relatively new in leukemia world, but this is therapy that's just ongoing, and we give it as long as you are in remission to try to prevent a relapse. In terms of our responses, we have different rates of response or different sort of um, depths of response. So a complete response is somebody for whom has gone through treatment, they've restored the normal hematopoiesis, they have normal blood counts and no more evidence of leukemia within their bone marrow. Sometimes we get a complete response with incomplete count recovery where we've erased the leukemia that we can see, but we might not have as healthy platelet recovery or neutrophil recovery. And then there's something we call a morphologic leukemia-free state, which is essentially we've erased the leukemia that we can see, but we also really have erased most of the healthy cells. So these are patients who have very low counts that persist, and the leukemia is not there. And then one important point that I always make to patients as well is that while remission is our first milestone and our first goal, it is not a cure. And in fact, this is a disease that is plagued by relapses. And so it's important, again, to know that when we treat and we get remission, we celebrate that. But uh, unfortunately, it's a lot longer uh, until we are able to get to cure. And then last, we have MRD, which is sort of minimal residual disease. And that's if we can detect disease by any of those genetic methods that we talked about. So for ALL, we look at a lot of different things to try to get a prognostic idea how this person will do. But really, the field has changed a lot to be focused on MRD. So if we can detect residual disease in these patients, that's always a bad omen. And in terms of our therapeutics for this disease, they are decided based on what is the origin of the lymphoma cell. Is it a T cell or a B cell? And then what other things are expressed or broken within the cell. And we divide our therapeutics up into a lot of different things, mostly based on age or performance status. So young adults get one type of treatment, sort of uh, middle-aged adults a different, and then older adults sometimes even a different. We look at fitness, we look at organ function, and whether they're eligible for a clinical trial. And the type of ther therapy can vary tremendously from these multi-agent intensive chemotherapy regimens to TKIs, just like we talked about in CML. These can also be used in Philadelphia-positive ALL. Um, we have antibody drug conjugates and other immunoactive therapies like CAR-T and bispecific antibodies. And so the point here is that there's a lot of different things we can do, and we can sequence these things differently too, depending on the phase of the disease. So again, and now a whirlwind tour through AML. Similarly, um, for AML, we have this prognostic scoring system where we look at the genetic mutations that we talked about, and we're able to lump people into either favorable, intermediate, or adverse risk categories. And that dictates not only what upfront treatment we might go to, but also how we might consolidate them in terms of needing a stem cell transplant or not. Again, MRD is really coming onto the field as one of the most important things in deriving you know, who's going to respond to their therapy and who might need something else. A couple of quick words on other things that are prognostic. You know, we at OSU spend a lot of time focused on AML and prognostics and how do we improve the field. And so this is just data showing that basically age is important in AML, but it's not a distinct cutoff, that the older you are, the worse the outcome is, and that is almost incremental over time. And so, you know, this is a 40% overall survival difference between the youngest patients and the oldest patients. We've also looked at race, and it's very important to acknowledge that there are differences in how our black patients are doing compared to our white patients, and we don't know yet all the reasons why this is so, but it's important because everybody should be 
recognizing this disease as soon as possible in all patients, and we are doing work to see how we can equalize that as well. So in terms of the therapeutic landscape, um, this was a good way to describe our options for treatment, um, basically when I was a fellow. You know, we had the intensive chemotherapy of seven and three. We had a few other things, but there really wasn't a lot to offer. And so what is really nice to kind of present is that in the last um, six, seven, eight years, we have had nine approvals by the FDA. And so this is, you know, really a much better landscape. And now the trouble is sequencing and, and you know, what goes first and for some of these patients. In terms of deciding how to treat somebody, all of these factors are really important. Age, fitness, their genetic risk group, whether they have a target, whether this is an AML that came up after another type of cancer, very importantly, what does the patient prefer? Are they up for a month in the hospital or not? And then I would be remiss if I didn't mention that there are significant adverse effects of therapy as well. So if somebody is facing an intensive round of chemotherapy, it is an immediate and prolonged hospitalization. You know, we tell people four to six weeks is what it takes to get through a seven and three style chemotherapy. And, uh, you know, having just gone through COVID, sometimes this was done alone and removed from family and that has some significant um, side effects. There are direct organ toxicities from the chemotherapy. You, uh, all of our patients are at extreme risk for infections due to immune suppression, not only from their disease, but from the treatments that we give. Functional decline is very common. You know, I, I often see patients who are 78 and the story is that they were doing great up until a month ago. And then because of their disease and treatment, you know, sometimes we're able to kind of delay the decline or help, you know, get in the way of that. But, but you can see, you know, a big change of performance status from dealing with this. All of our patients have significant transfusion needs, sometimes as much as two or three times a week they need blood transfusions. And then as you can imagine, lots of psychosocial stressors as well. So in summary, um, acute leukemia is an onset that is typically very rapid. There are key historical item items that can raise your suspicion, especially this sort of former treatment of cancer, um, anybody who takes uh, an oral chemotherapy for an immune um, an autoimmune disease, these are things that can make you at least think a little bit more about, you know, what a CBC might mean. CBCs are very useful for um, identifying this disease. Uh, our diagnosis and prognosis requires multiple specialized tests, um, but treatment options now are more plentiful and very personalized. So in terms of our high yield points here, how does one recognize leukemia? So patient presentations really can vary and sometimes require a high degree of clinical suspicion, which is where all of our, you know, the primary care colleagues really come in because you will be the one to notice something is off with your patient. The CBC is very often obvious to direct further workup as we kind of discussed between chronic and acute leukemias. CMI on, uh, CML on TKIs I think is an important note because these are patients you will be seeing and managing all of their other comorbidities. There are very characteristic but also non-characteristic side effects and adherence is key. So always checking in with patients and finding out, you know, they sometimes don't want to tell you they're not taking their TKI for X, Y, or Z reason, but communication is really important because the TKIs can't work if they don't end up um, in their stomachs. And then also I, I like to be able to tell patients now that there is hope for a treatment-free remission, although it is in a small minority of patients. Uh, and then last, acute leukemia is a rapidly changing field. We've been so fortunate these last, uh, basically since my training, to have so many more options. And so disseminating that information to me is very important. Diagnostics are very complicated and so are, are best really done at a place that can kind of do all of them and interpret them and turn them around quickly. Um, but there are many more tolerable treatment options as well. And that's what I have. So thanks for listening.
Thank you so much, Carolyn. That was super helpful. And I think that really helped to at least demystify leukemia to me and what I need to do um, to work someone up or at least get them started on the path for uh, connecting with the hematologist. So, you know, I know you mentioned that half of the patients with CML are asymptomatic. If they're asymptomatic, how would we detect that? That's an excellent question. So I would say that um, most of the time it is from another set of labs for another reason. So sometimes your exam will tell you by detecting that splenomegaly. So again, if somebody's spleen is palpable, it might warrant you to get a CBC. I would say the other times are is keeping an eye on when you've done blood work and it's just a little off, you know, so it can be very, very mild anemia or even just, it's not anemic, but it's a decrease of two grams maybe from the year before and just a little bit of that leukocytosis. Having the suspicion to send a BCR able, you know, that will just tell you conclusively if that's what you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. And then speaking of splenomegaly a little bit, is there a good way to work that up? Because to be honest, um, I think physical exam is becoming less and less um, you know, important or utilized during a well visit. And additionally, in some of our more obese mm -hmm. patients, it can be a very difficult exam to palpate the spleen. So um, if somebody has symptoms, you know, like you mm -hmm. mentioned, early satiety or uh, upper quadrant pain, would how would you detect that? Would you um, recommend like an ultrasound or um, how would you look at the spleen? Yeah, absolutely. And you're, you're right. Sometimes the physical exam is impossible in certain situations. So yeah, splenic ultrasound is the you know, least exposure, simplest, probably cost-effective test just to document what the size of the spleen is. Now, if you had concerns for other things that, you know, warranted a more advanced imaging, but just for looking at the spleen, a spleen ultrasound is perfect. Okay, perfect. Now, it sounds like a CBC is pretty <laughs> critical in diagnosing leukemic patients. Are you always going to see abnormal white blood cells, or is the CBC always going to be abnormal, or is there something else we should be looking at in the CBC? So that's a great question. So in acute leukemias, there's always something off with the CBC. And in chronic leukemias, it is possible to have everything sort of within indices. So in the setting of having a normal white blood count, normal platelets and normal um, hemoglobin, the way that you might pick up on a CML is the abnormal differential. So uh -huh. you have to see some level of left shift immaturity for there really to be something wrong. And again, I have had probably a handful of acute leukemia patients come in because a very savvy hematopathologist from somewhere recognized a promyelocyte or something like that on a differential, uh -huh. whereas the CBC, in my opinion, doesn't really look that bad. Now, again, it usually is abnormal where some anemia or something like that, mm -hmm. but the findings could be not always dramatic. And that's really it, is if there's an abnormal type of cell in the differential, um, that's sometimes worth chasing down, at least with a repeat, if not, you know, um, calling your local hematologist. Okay. And then in kids, leukemia is the most common form of cancer. So do you end up seeing a lot of recurrences of childhood leukemia? So fortunately, no, we don't. And I think that's for a couple different reasons. One, the treatments for childhood leukemia have become fantastic. And so they just have very high cure rates, which is terrific. Um, for those patients who actually do go on to relapse, most do so within the first two years. And so that would sort of keep them in their pediatric realm for the most part. They would stay um, you know, with the patient, uh, the docs that have been treating them. Mm -hmm. Now, we do sometimes see these patients who are you know, 10 or 20 years out from a childhood diagnosis or a childhood stem cell transplant, but they're typically not relapses. They're typically new leukemias. And as I mentioned before, having prior chemotherapy and radiation is a risk factor for developing 
both myeloid disease but acute leukemia. And so that's the most common way that we might see somebody who had a childhood illness. Okay, now speaking of recurrence, is there a point at which a patient is safe from recurrence? Is it like five years, you, <laughs> you know, chance of recurrence is really low. At what point would you call someone cured? Yes, so five years is our historical definition for um, being cured. And that's what I continue to tell patients. Unfortunately, we sometimes see a seven year or nine year or 10 year relapse. Sometimes it's a true relapse. Sometimes, again, it's a secondary sort of leukemia. But five years is what we use to di diagnose cure. Okay. And now some survivors, you know, happily have graduated <laughs> from their hematologists um, and, you know, are now just seeing their primary care doctor. So what should we do as primary care doctors to um, help these patients um, and screen them and knowing that they have higher risk for other uh, secondary cancers? That's a terrific question, Jingjing. And actually, I start, I look forward to the conversations I get to have with my patients once we've sort of passed acute phase of treatment and we're getting out of some of the complications because I start talking to them about making sure they're reestablishing if they've kind of drifted from their PCP, that they're communicating what they've been treated with, and that we're providing good notes in terms of you know what we want to look for. But in short, patients who go through leukemia therapy, it's somewhat individual based on whether they had to do chemotherapy alone or whether they went through a stem cell transplant. But all of these patients are at higher risk for sort of the common things that you will typically see. So they're at higher risk for cancers, um, predominantly, you know, squamous cell skin cancers for a lot of things. And so it's just really important they get all of their usual cancer screening. There currently is not any guidelines for doing things earlier, but just making sure that they actually get them done. Mm -hmm. Also, I tell them they need to see dentistry because they can actually have a lot of gum health disease from, you know, chemotherapy and, and radiation. Um, and there's also a high instance of metabolic syndrome, and so making sure that their lipids, their blood pressure, you know, that they're getting stress tested, even if they're a young person, because it's possible they have premature coronary artery disease related to their treatment. Two other things I, I think a lot about is sort of, um, you know, neuro neurocognitive function, this whole chemo brain, you know, uh -huh. so some patients, again, who've had a lot of IT chemo, or just the style of treatment that they've had can put them at risk for sort of premature dementia type symptoms. Um, and so that is not fully, I would say, appreciated, but that is mm -hmm. something to be aware of. And again, low, low um, uh, index for yeah, suspicion. <laughs> yes. And then I would say lastly is sort of the psychosocial effects. And so that is something that as we have more survivors and, you know, they grow up and do things that um, I still see patients, most of them have some type of PTSD or depression or anxiety. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, being able to talk about that, have the right support systems um, is really important. Mm -hmm. That's super helpful. Thank you so much, Carolyn. Um, I thought that the information you provided today was extremely helpful. And now I feel much more comfortable approaching my patients with uh, possible leukemia. So thank you so much. Well, we're gonna finish up today's program with a final key point. Carolyn? So I would say my take home is that, you know, leukemia requires this high index of clinical suspicion. And so, you know, listen to your gut if something is off with your patient and, and you know, that CBC is a very helpful test to start understanding if, if there's something there. And then also, you know, acute leukemia has changed so much. And so anytime you suspect a, an acute leukemia patient, it's never too early to reach out to your local hematologist or, you know, to us for guidance, because I'm always happy uh, to talk to somebody on the phone and get people to care, you know, in a very rapid fashion. Thanks for joining us today. For our audience, log on to our website at ccme.osu.edu to take our post-test and claim your CME credit and your ABIM MOC points for watching. Next week, I've invited Dr. Sean Dason to discuss prostate cancer screening. 
That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.